I have the great good pleasure today to be here with Sevilla King from Equality Existence. Good to see you here, Sevilla. Great to see you. We decided we had to get together because there's been so much good stuff lately with Jonathan Pajot at the Consciousness and Conscience Conference and with Tammy and Matthew Pajot having a conversation. We wanted to get at this while it's still fresh and it fits in with so many of the things that we've been talking about. So, so Sevilla, I hear that you got to go to the conference in Peter Bay. Yeah, that was great. It was very, very nice. So first of all, did you drive up there? No, I just, I took the plane straight to Thunder Bay. Okay. Well, not straight. I had to go through Toronto. And and how many days were you there? I was there four nights. So. Oh, wow. So I made, you know, I was there through the entire conference. It started halfway during the day on Thursday. Well, I started earlier, but a bunch of people went and did a, um, an event. I don't know what it's called. Airsoft. Paintball. Paintball, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> In the rain. It was, you know, pouring. But, you know, there were troopers. And I, that's the, a high thing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, the worse, the grungier, the better. Yeah. 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 And then Friday was a particular agenda. I mean, you've seen all you've seen you've seen all the clips appear at this point. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'm more interested. Did you get to meet um a lot of new people? Did you get to meet any of the people that have been on your channel or people that correspond in the comment section or? Well, I got to meet, you know, obviously I got to meet Paul, uh, Jonathan and John. Mm-hmm. So that was really nice. And spend a little, I, I, um, I actually went out to lunch with, with um, John and Christopher Master Pietro who came on Saturday. Wow. Nice. I managed to show up, which was really nice. So I, now I had met Christopher before, as you know, he came to DC. Hmm. So that was actually the first. It might have been the, unless it was uh, there was a couple people from the book club that I met earlier, but he was the first person I met in this little corner. And um, and then so we had lunch, and I made two. Um, I met many nice people there, but I made um, there were a couple people who I really. Um, spent some time with, and we had lunch. They they joined me for lunch with with John and Christopher. Uh, Lizelle came all the way from uh, the Netherlands, and her friend Robert, who lives in Florida, who's really quite the expert in they 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 circle around John Verbeke more than anything, and are really unpacking Plato. I mean, they're they're sort of Plato experts. It's interesting for me because I'm not, and I'd like yeah. to be more. And since you know, it's kind me, of like me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but but it seems like you know neo neoplatonic uh, writing and the early church fathers and Plato himself, of course, figure into a lot of what informs people's trajectory in this corner. So that well, that more and more, from what I understand, Plato yeah. is beginning to inform a lot of the scientific community as well. So well, that's good to know. Do you yeah. know anything about that? Do you do you know specifically well, happening? Um, I I just hear rumblings here and there uh, in the scientific community of people that are saying that that they have to get back to a, a Platonic worldview. I don't know. I mean, even even Michael Levin, who isn't at all interested in talking about the theological side of anything. <clears throat> he considers himself Neoplatonic. And so he and John had a 
really good conversation about that when they were discussing all the biological things. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so you had a great time, and you yeah. and you said that the one talk that really stood out to you was the one that Jonathan did on love and attention. So maybe you want I to mean, give us a little review of what that was about. I just want to say that all the talks are really good. And one thing that was really cool was seeing, you know, um, Paul did this did a sermon on Sunday, so I got to see him in action as a as a preacher. Mm -hmm. Thing else, he's he's really he's fantastic. Well, uh, do you do you not watch it? I watch I about fifty percent of the time I watch his sermon prep that he puts out every week. He puts right, out right, a, yeah. where he does the message. In advance of doing the message, and yeah. so you get to see it kind of raw. But it's something else to see him in action because yeah. he's a formidable figure. You know, he's very tall and, and he's he's he really a formidable figure. <laughs> yeah, yes, you know, he's like um, he's someone who really makes a great preacher because he's mm -hmm. so down to earth and, and everything on his channel. And in person, he's really, um, you know. It, I, I wouldn't use the word intimidating or imposing or anything like that, but he's just like tall. He's elegant. He, you know, he's got a great voice. So in yeah. person, it's really quite the experience. And I'm very yeah, happy. I had a chance to meet him a couple of times in Sacramento at, um, at a couple of different, um, not estuary, but when he used to have these meetups mm -hmm. yeah, so. and uh, just to get to see him in action with a group of people is really something he's, yeah. he's got a pastor's heart for sure. And a real presence. So yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, the, I, I didn't really get much of a chance to talk to Jonathan Peugeot, but we exchanged a few words and that was, that was very nice. Um, he, he had to shuffle off like not early, but in the middle of the, like early in the day on Sunday, uh, I think he was joining Jordan Peterson. He was going off to England. Well, yeah, and then I had been watching on Twitter where there have been pictures of him and Jordan in Israel mm -hmm. filming the Exodus yeah. series together. So they're working on that right now. Yeah, yeah that's he's, he's been super busy. But but Jonathan's talk really stood out that I just released a video about it um, because, you know, he's talking about the good. He's talking about attention and the good and it's it's right you know it's very much like what Persick says about quality you know you have this and and Jonathan uh, John Verbeke helps a lot with his language you know you have the relevance realization and that's the thing that's the most important thing to you at that moment for whatever you're doing and it's like underneath it is the structure of cognition versus any particular object in the world if that makes sense so, so when you're talking about something, you're talking about um, what, you know, what, what is the center of your attention for whatever you're doing, like he uses the apple and the glass very frequently. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and, and the quality of that, you know, the, the relationship you have with it has meaning. Like the relationship with the glass means you're thirsty, and that means that your relationship with the glass means you're going to have this particular need satisfied. But but one point he really makes is that, you know, the way you look at the world depends on what it means to you versus breaking down everything into little particles, for example. Like you don't see all the atoms, you know, milling around. You you see the structure of the thing that means mm -hmm. something to you. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the picture that I've had, the picture that built up in my mind over like 20 years of working with art was um, that somehow when we're born, we're born with a, like a, a, I don't know what to call it, a framework, a matrix, something inside of us that has lots and lots of connecting places. And as data input comes in and as we have experiences and as we hear things and as we speak and get feedback and as we're loved and all any kind of experience that we have, any sort of sensory experience, any sort of thought experience, all makes attachments onto this thing. Mm -hmm. And then that builds this thing out so that it gets bigger and has more attachments and has more capacity to gain more of this stuff. But then every single thing that we experience or hear is going through that filter because that filter is already established who I am inside. So people say that's roughly what John is talking about when he talks about relevance realization. Because what's relevant to me in any given moment is going to be completely different than what's relevant to you in that given moment. Absolutely. Right? Because of how I have been built out inside of me, in my consciousness, in my spirit, in my heart. Um, Just as any movement that I make is going to be idiosyncratic to me based on how much effort I put into building my body and, and being prepared for life and, you know, all of that. I am a complete, unique individual in that everything that I hear and say and every song I hear comes to me in a different way than it comes to you because it it fills in all these spots in me. Right, <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, that has always just amazed me to think how we not only have unique DNA representing our physical person, mm-hmm. but we have this unique experiential DNA that makes us completely unique, which is why I always felt that personal creativity is so important because we can't always articulate the things that that we understand in a unique way to other people. We can't use words. We're not always... I went through a period of time when I was raising my daughter and she was a toddler up until about five or six years old when I kind of lost my ability to communicate at an adult level but I still wanted to communicate. So that's when I started painting because painting gave me an opportunity to say something that was inside of me that I couldn't put into words. So some people cook, some people, um, some people paint, some people write. There's a lot of different ways that you can learn to articulate that inner self. And I feel like if we don't articulate that inner self, the world is poor because every person has something to offer into this kind of universe of individuals right yeah i think that's right and i think that you know there are a lot of things that have happened recently mostly the fact that we you know that we're so involved in the internet and social media that has kind of decreased i think our ability to be truly creative and it's replaced with something much more superficial like i think a lot of the stuff that's happening on twitter solves the problem of creativity people think they're expressing themselves and they get extremely involved i mean these days it's often from these you know two political or cultural standpoints and they get very invested in this in this i guess you could say and this is another term that jonathan Houston has talked is these uh distributed 
cognitions and they are entities and they get we get you know trapped and involved in these entities that have a causal effect on us and you really see that you know you really see like let's just take these two cultural entities right people are very much like like they're almost possessed by what these entities are telling them even though we have created these entities and i think like so so um that's sort of a a, a, a tangent but people are possessed by these and then they express this and they have the sensibility that this is their personal creativity and it is so superficial you know it's not what you're talking about you're talking mm -hmm. about taking the essence of who you are in any um, and then pairing it with some inspiration and coming up with beautiful paintings. Well, even, even just coming up with a beautiful relationship. I mean, it, it, it's not just in working a, a work of art or something like that, but it's, it's how we use our uniqueness and individuality in speaking into the world, whether it's in relationships or... Um, but you used the word possessed, and that just grabbed me because... There's a there's a blogger that I've been reading for a long time named Ann Althaus. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll put a link to her website because uh, she always says interesting stuff on there. And she ha she's gotten onto TikTok lately. <laughs> she, had <a> TikTok. <laughs> she had a TikTok on there of this French girl talking about the word marotte. And the reason she was talking about it was that um, someone had made the comment that King Charles would not give up his many marotte when he took when he took the kingship and so she said what what does that word mean so she went back and looked up the etymology of marot and marot actually goes way back to the idea of the jester's scepter you know the jester would carry this thing with a little head and a bell on it or something like that um but it later came to mean um any sort of a Thing that you become a fan of or that um, you kind of start investing all your interest in it could you know it could be a hobby it could be a political party it could be anything where you get obsessed with this thing and then that's all you think about it's all you talk about so it's very in John's words very reciprocally narrowing yeah exactly that, that represent but I thought it was interesting that it was represented by this um, jester's stick <laughs> later on came to mean a lot of other things um but that was the beginning etymology of it and apparently king charles has a few um particular obsessions that he has hobbies of thought thought processes of some sort that really he doesn't want to give up in mm -hmm. order to differentiate himself but um i thought that word marot was interesting because we all the political stuff especially i think grabs people and they they lose any sense of individuality because now they're just part of the herd. That's whichever, right. Whichever herd they're in, right? Yeah, and these these entities, you know, these distributed cognitions or whatever you want to call them, um, emergent beings. I, I know that uh, you know maybe they're demons. <laughs> you, you know, just kind of rule over us in that regard. Well, you know, dictating every every opinion, every thought. In a, in a sense, I mean, the biblical language, maybe it's not biblical, but the idea of opening a door to to the enemy, opening a door to the other side, giving him a foothold or a stronghold in your life. Yeah. 
that's what it's equivalent to really giving these entities a stronghold in your life so that so that you lose touch with reality basically yeah and they um and what jonathan was saying he, he was talking about parasitic you know like like that these entities will parasitize your you know that that essential nature we have which is being drawn towards something which is love which is attachment to things mm-hmm. your tension and love are very much interrelated so if your tension is captured in a certain way then they've also got your um affection let's say or their or your love because when you look at these people on twitter they they it's it's as if they're defending their parents almost you you, you know what i mean or they're defending their children i mean it's it's like they're so invested in these strictly theoretical realms yeah i i stopped i curated my twitter down to just a handful of people yeah, and that's made a huge difference. But it's strange to me, even some of those people who are very um, intellectual, seemingly very spiritual people that I really admire and look up to, they have their issues that they will grab onto like that and they won't let go. And often it's got something to do with uh, the virus. Yeah. <laughs> people right. have very strong opinions on both sides of that. And... Uh, um, yeah, it's really interesting. But but going back to the whole attention thing and the mm-hmm. love. Um, so I think this ties in very much to Persig. I know you yeah, just yeah. did a video about Persig and, and Jonathan's uh, talk. I didn't get a chance to listen to your whole thing. I apologize. Yeah, no, no. But um, I wonder if you could just briefly talk about how attention ties into Persig's idea of quality because some things have come up for me recently in my research that I, I think really fit in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, one, one word that Jonathan uses that really carries over into Persig is the word care. Like when you care about something, it's quite spontaneous. So let's say, you know, like you with your painting and and Jonathan also gave an example of when he's you know when he's doing artwork that if you know it's not even a particular thing you're trying to express it's that notion that you're trying to you know not a particular preconceived thing you just have the sensibility of what you're trying to express in the painting Mm -hmm. and you don't have like very frequently you don't even have any kind of idea of how you want it to turn out although you could Mm mm-hmm and um, as you're going, you know, you have this this quality, this love in you for the expression of this, um, let's say, the expression of quality itself that you were feeling. And so you care about every stroke you make or every, you know, every um, stroke of the paintbrush. And you can make this one, not that one. But the care drives you in a direction and what you end up with is a painting. Yeah, I think the care is intimately connected to the attention mm-hmm. because um, I noticed a long time ago, I, when I first started painting, I, I used to, I liked, I liked doing figures. And so I would project a photograph up on the canvas and then I would paint the figure and they always turn out nicely because I projected the photograph. Right? Yeah. 
Um, but my, my teacher challenged me and he said, you will never find out what your own style is. If you keep using a projector, throw yeah. that thing away, even though it costs $389, which was <laughs> a lot of money back in the day. Right. Um, so when I first started trying to draw figures, um, so many interesting things about it. One weird thing is that if you draw from the shoulder with your whole arm, you can draw more precisely than if you draw from your wrist. Oh, that's really your hand. Um, I don't know why that is. There's some connection between that large muscle mass and your brain right. and, and precision and measurement and so forth that you can't get with your, with your, just your hand. But the point is I would draw it and then I would have to look at it and realize it's not, it's not, that's not what it is. So then I would have to modify it a little bit. Okay. It's closer. I could see it in my mind. I could see what it was supposed to be, but yeah, that's right. But it wasn't there. Right. So right. I have to keep looking and I have to keep modifying and some things I have to shave off and mm -hmm. something, sometimes I'd paint away some part of it and sometimes I'd add on yeah. something. So you're, your sensibility is always measuring somehow against this vision that you have. So you have the vision and then you're always measuring. Yeah. And I had conversation, a couple of conversations recently with Brad about measurement. And really, um, when you think about measurement and the ideal and how the ideal is a judge. And so this, the quality thing that you're, you're reaching for, or the vision that you have, that, that is, that's the ideal. And that is the judge and the judge yeah. is always car carving away. And I love the way Jonathan made this connection between on the one hand, mercy, which is gathering in, mm -hmm. pulling in and judgment, which is pushing away, right. but not judgment in a, not judgment always in a negative or bad sense, but yeah. Judgment carves away what shouldn't be there. That's right. And so the other night I was um, laying in bed watching an old Narnia movie. And <laughs> the one about, I don't know if you ever saw any of the Narnia movies. But Are they the cartoons? No, no, no. These were um, legit live action movies, um, Chronicles of Narnia. There's one called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Mm -hmm. And in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's an annoying, nasty little boy named Eustace who thinks that he's the be all and end all. And he's a oh, real tyrant, right? <laughs> um, but he stumbles into a dragon's lair and sees all this gold there and, and um, sees this beautiful gold armband and he puts it on his arm and it turns him into a dragon. Mm -hmm. The dragon takes over his body. So for much of the movie, he's this dragon, but he doesn't want to be a dragon. He wants to go back to being a boy. And the way that he ultimately becomes not a dragon anymore is that he's trying to pull away this dragon skin. And then Aslan, who represents Christ, mm -hmm. comes near to him. And Aslan starts helping him to separate it. But of course, it hurts. Yeah. having this stuff pulled off really yeah. hurts right but then when he's finally freed from it then of course yeah. he's a boy again and he's a completely changed boy yeah. he's not the same at all because yeah, yeah. all the stuff that didn't belong all that dragon that was in him got peeled away right so that's the contrast for me between the mercy the gathering in the openness the 
the care, the mm -hmm. listening, the attending, the seeing, the gathering, that's all on the mercy side. And then yeah. on the judgment side is the measuring, even taking apart, all, reducing things down to the parts and then putting them back together again. The, um, I think Jonathan used the word decomposition at one point. Yeah. And then I think also in that category goes discerning and identifying and meaning. Yeah. Because in the conversation between Tammy and Mathieu, Mathieu, <laughs> Mathieu, <laughs> um, he was talking about how when Adam was naming the animals, maybe I can bring up this clip. Yeah, that would be great. That's um, that, Yeah, I think it was, it, that was the part that interested me too. their identity. So you see that the story of the flood is, is kind of the opposite of the story uh, of Adam naming the animals. So you have Adam that names the animals. So that's an example of giving meaning to factuality or giving meaning to what is. And then with the flood, you have the, the opposite. So you have the identity of beings are, are falling apart and there's confusion, like there's hybridity between animals. So this is in tradition, but these are very well established tradition that before the flood, there were mixture of animals. Like the, they started to create hybrids oh, I see. of different animals. Mm -hmm. And this is important. It means something very, very significant. It means the identity of beings were getting confused. So that's why I said it's the opposite of Adam naming the animals. Because Adam, when he names the animals, that's what he's doing. He's giving a uh, clear identity mm -hmm. to beings. Mm -hmm. But then in the flood, this identity is being confused. Like they're being mixed together. Mm -hmm. And then what Noah does, the flood, the idea that there's water covering the earth, that is what it represents. It represents a confusion between or uh, it's not just confusing in the sense that we don't that we don't know something. It's it's also like a fluidity of things. Mm -hmm. Things change always. Their 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 the definition of things start to change in a way where there's nothing stable and there's nothing fixed and things get mixed up together. So that's what the water between heaven and earth represents. I think I'm going to stop there because yeah. I wanted to. Uh... I wanted to ask you about something and what he mm -hmm. said there. So he's talking about naming things, identifying things, which I would put over in this category of discerning mm -hmm. um, and of I'm, I, what I'm thinking about is when Jordan Peterson talks about these people who aren't differentiated, mm -hmm. they're so agreeable that they never develop a, personality or an individuality yeah. and they kind of walk around in the fog mm -hmm. and I think that's connected with this flood thing with not naming yeah not no, being I, willing to particularize your life not being willing to say who you are because you're afraid you might be wrong or and I wonder if you could say something about that from a therapist's perspective well yeah I think that 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 makes a lot of sense because um you know, it's it's very easy to be confused if you don't have, I mean, a lot of this kind of thing would go back to 
were your parents able to help you develop yourself in a proper manner, which means, and, and this, you know, you see these same patterns over and over again, which means help you deal with the reality of, of you know, the world and its limitations in society and being able to operate in it properly in the set patterns, of the set social patterns, of teach you the social patterns. At the same time, allow you to, like you were saying, have your own individual, like we have this, you know, biological framework that's very similar, but how that framework, in, you know, populates with experience is going to be quite different for all of us. So to allow that difference, the difference that your inclinations are going towards to develop to within, you know, within the parameters of certain frameworks. So you don't, so you aren't just sort of, you know, a, a wash in a way. And there's a couple of things I think that can happen. One is, you know, one is, one is like overbearing parenting, which, you know, tries to enforce the parent's personality on the kid. And the other is way too lenient. So you don't, you know, that structure doesn't develop properly. So one or the other could result in what you're talking about, I think. Like one is you don't, you haven't learned to differentiate yourself because you haven't been allowed to because of, you know, the draconian parental style or you you don't have enough structure. And so you're sort of, you know, washing an anything goes type of mentality. And, and you know, what's funny is a lot of times kids who are, who are raised in a too lenient environment become quite rigid as an antidote later. So I think what, what he's talking about is somehow not being, I mean, it could be either one, like somehow not being grounded in the correct patterns, the correct, um, which, which Matthew talks about a lot, the correct, you know, structure. And another is, um, Another is having it so structured that you're not able to learn how to, to um, you know, navigate it yourself. But but whatever the case, the other the the thing that that stands out to me, of course, is that that um, you know that um, relationship between the two, which which scales up and down in every regard. Which is the relationship the, between the, the the structure and the openness. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, the structure needs to update, like he's saying, you know, like these structures will update, but if they're allowed to update too much without any grounding, then you get this what this what this water represents. Yeah, so so that fits right in. See, lately yeah. um I've been re trying to read a lot of scientific papers. It's a challenge because I don't have the background, but I, I hear but, you. <laughs> um, Michael Levin uh, put on Twitter yesterday a paper that he and uh, a guy in quantum physics named Chris Fields, and then Carl Friston, who's also, I, I think, a cognitive neuroscientist. The three of them published this paper together. And the basic idea of the paper, if I get it correctly, is that way down to the level of quantum mechanics, the same thing is happening all the way down through all the levels yeah. that, um, and this goes to information theory and it, it goes to uh, thermodynamics and all of these kinds of things, that, that the environment 
impacts the system mm -hmm. and the system impacts the environment. Yeah, totally makes sense. Right? Yeah. So I I put on uh I I responded to him on Twitter and I tweeted out and I said, "Okay, here's the quote." And it basically that's what it said. It was a quote from his paper. And yeah. then I said, "Then does this mean that it's turtles all the way up as well?" <laughs> and he came back and he said, "Bingo." <laughs> so apparently I found the kernel in that in that paper and and then he said I will have more on this next month we're we're working on it. Oh that's good. But if it's turtles all the way up then you know like Glenn says that would be a very good case for strong emergence. Mm -hmm. And strong emergence is that there has to be an emanation as well as an emergence. That's it right. can't just be emergence from the bottom right. up. Right. And so then that gets back to your idea of quality. Yeah. And, and the quality spirit, spirit in the Peugeot metaphysics, it's, it's kind of the same thing. You know, you're infused with this greater idea, let's say, you know, that an idea is spirit and how you manifest that, that is, is, is matter. Let's say you're inspired to make a painting. You manifest it with uh, oil painting, oil paints on canvas, mm -hmm. you know, it's the meeting of spirit and matter. And, and, and back to the attention thing, I think what he's, you know, it's like, where do you put your attention? Do you put it on something good or do you put it on something lesser? So if you're doing a painting, there's a pure, uh, there's a pure attention that's directed. You could be painting something for someone else, right? You have a commission and this is how you're going to make your living and they want this. So that's your attention is here. But if you're, you know, really involved in the dynamic experience of, of self-expression. That's in a way a higher purpose. There's no nothing impeding you, your expression in that. There's no person telling you what to do and there's no paycheck at the end of it. You know, you're, you're taking your own inspiration. That's where your attention is versus over here what the client wants. Yeah, and it's a completely different experience. Yeah. I've done a few commissions and Man, it's hard. It's a yeah. lot harder than, yeah. than um, and, and it's hard for so many reasons because you're like you say, your attention is drawn aside. And, it's drawn uh, aside. It's drawn to partial, not the full. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, if you're taking whatever this inspiration is, whatever this quality is within you that you want to express, and you don't know what it is really, you know, a lot of times it has to sort of be in relationship with your artist materials. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me throw something out for you. Um, uh, the, in this conversation I had with Brad the other day, which hasn't published yet, it'll publish mm -hmm. next month. Um, he was talking about agape as as the, in some ways, agape is the ultimate observer. Mm -hmm. If you think of it as turtles all the way up, yeah. very top would be agape, would be yeah. because God is love, that's the equal side. Right. And so, so each turtle is sort of a fractal representation of this ultimate. Is that what he means? Well, for example, if you have a system and an environment, a, a cell is a system and it exists within an organ. Uh -huh. so the organ is the environment of the cell. So this, the, the organ is, is having some authority over the cell and the cell is having some authority over the organ. Yeah, supporting and then, the organ. And the organ is within the body. Yeah. So 
the, the organ is the environment for the cell, but the body is the environment for the organ. Right. And then the atmosphere mm -hmm. around me, the heat or cold or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever kind of environment I'm in, or even the cultural environment that I'm yeah. in is the environment for my system as a human person. And then the, the nation is the environment for, you know, my cultural environment and the, the universe, you know, so it, it, there's environment all the way up and each mm -hmm. system becomes an environment as you, as you move up. Yeah. Um, and, and it goes all the way down as well. But, but to me, that seems to be analogous to the observer and the observed. Mm -hmm. The environment is the observer and, and the system is the observed. So then that means if it's turtles all the way up with the observer and the observed, then the ultimate at the top is still agape. Mm -hmm. So when you're in relationship with somebody, you're, if you are both looking through the lens of agape, if that agape coming down is the lens through which you see each other, then, yeah. then the relationship is going to be you know, more secure and the, the proper balance of attention and discernment or of care and of separation. That's right. Right. You're going to get the proper balance. Yeah. That, that reminds me a lot of, you know, what John wants Dialogos to be, you know, mm -hmm. like, like guided by that, like, like, you know, ego out of it, at least not in the sense that someone wants to win or, or, or show off in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Like, like you and I are talking and we're trying to make sense of these things we're looking at. Yeah. And in order to for me to convey to you what I'm trying to say, I have to say it in a, you know, I, I have to get a sense of where, like we kind of have to come together as where our attention is going, mm -hmm. you know, and get rid of the stuff, like like clarifying would be getting rid of the stuff that, that doesn't serve that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so so I mean, in terms of agape, I think that means that kind of approach that is open, you know, like like going in the going along the quality track, let's say, like like letting the conversation go where it feels like it's serving this thing that we're trying to, and it, we're not even defining it, you know, the good, let's just say, or the good in context of this of this conversation which is clarify, well, like, like you and I had a few things, you know, we wanted to talk about and just seeing how they come together and make sense of things. And that, that attitude we have, that open attitude, dynamic attitude is agape. Is, is that just, is that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that, I think that's one aspect of it. And another aspect of it is something else that Mathieu was talking about with Tammy. Let me see if I can find that as well. Um. <clears throat> I think it was right around 55. Well, here's, here's an example. I mean, I'll give you an example of Levin. Uh, mm -hmm. You want to uh, show the importance of, of someone. Let's say you want to show that someone's important. So you make a big parade with a lot of music and a lot of balloons. That's all Levin right there. Balloons, oh, parade, yeah. music. Oh, I apologize. It's all I apologize. empty stuff. It's actually 52. 
Okay, that's that's interesting. I mean, that part was good too. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. all good. It's all we good. we just don't have all day. So. No, we don't. <laughs> Bible. It's the mm-hmm. concept of change and time and transformation. So it's that's what you meant by chemical tr- reaction. It's a transformation, and in that sense, yes. Mm-hmm. So it's also about leaven is is a pretty uh, deep symbolism because it basically it means something like it's a puffing up of of something, but from nothing, right? Because the bread it doesn't get more substance to it. It just mm-hmm becomes bigger it's air basically it's a lot of air okay so that is also it represents the concept of time because time is something that doesn't accomplish anything it's a cycle okay so the idea is it's you're doing so he's talking about the contrast between bread and um the sacrifice of animals mm-hmm. and Bread is leavened, and that in the air growing the bread is equivalent to time. Mm-hmm. Well, not the air, but but the time that it takes for the bread to grow. Yeah. That's equivalent to time yeah. in his in his picture. And uh, and then the other thing that comes up is at one o three. He starts talking about the animal. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you, let's say, do whatever it takes to get your new career, either you start a business or you go, you go learn something that you don't know. So this money is like the flesh that you're offering to the idea, the new idea that you have, which is to get this new career. Does that make a little bit of sense? So the idea is yes. like heaven. It's pure. It's just an idea. If you don't offer flesh to it, it's not going to happen. Right. right. You have to give it some substance, some uh, potential uh, resources. You got to send resources to your idea. Otherwise, it's just this, an idea. It's just spirit. It's just so that's so and it's a very simple idea there that yeah. you have the idea. You have to sacrifice flesh to the idea in order for the idea to manifest reality. Mm-hmm. And so not only resource, but action is required. So, I mean, I could have an idea for a painting, but if I don't put in the effort to actually make a painting, if I don't waste the resource, waste the resource. You know, when I first started painting, I used to be very afraid to try different things because the I was a watercolor artist and the paper was so expensive. It cost oh, yeah. Ten dollars yeah. for a sheet of paper. Oh, I remember. Rag paper, so, yeah. So if you screw up, yeah, yeah. you just have to throw the paper away. And because watercolor, once it's done, it's done. You can't undo totally it. Right. Yeah, you can. You know, and then you try to do it with the whiteout and it looks terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, you have to risk the resource, but you also have to risk the action and the time and the effort. And to me, that all comes back to love because love is an action. So love is both the idea and love is the action. And and you have to um, sacrifice is an act of love. And in order to love well, there's a lot of sacrifice that takes place because you're always factoring opportunity cost. If I do this for this person because I love them, there's all these other things I can't do. Mm-hmm. 
if I spend this for this person because I love them, there's all these other things I can't spend my money on. Mm -hmm. um, so whether you're loving a person or loving an idea or loving the or loving agape as agape, mm -hmm. then it always requires action and that requires sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense what you said, because if you do one thing, that means you can't do the other. That so it inherently inaction is sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. which inherently is a kind of judgment because you're peeling off all these things right. that you can't do in order to do the one thing that, that you have determined to do. So there's a, there's an intention mm -hmm. and then, then you're somehow communicating that intention and then you have to act on that intention. Yeah. So, so your highest good would be, you know, your relationship with this person and lesser things have to go by the wayside. Well, actually, in order to have a successful relationship with this person, your highest good has to be agape itself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. There was um, Jonathan's talk. You saw the whole thing, right? Uh, Jonathan's talk. Um, I I saw it through once. There was a lot there, and so I yeah, started yeah. on it again. So but yeah, you, I have a rough you know, idea. You know that a lot of it is about sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what he's saying in there is, and I think he said something very similar to what you said. He said, well, you've got this, he uses the sports analogy a lot for this. Yeah. Well, you've heard this before. You've got this team and um, it's really interesting. Everyone on the team has to sacrifice something. They have to show up for practice and they have to work together and no one can be the star. You just have to, the highest thing is to win the game. Mm-hmm. So everyone has to sacrifice for that. But at the same time, you know, the whole entity of the team itself has to accommodate for its parts. That means not everyone's going to be the perfect player, for example. So you have to, like one guy can kick really well, but he can't run that fast. I mean, Jonathan didn't say this, but, but it, there's something like, you know, you have to accommodate <clears throat> for people's talents. You can't assume that just because everyone is focused on the highest good, that they're all going to be perfect about it. Mm -hmm. There has to be some kind of leeway in that agape, you know, in that understanding and that care that takes all these parts and puts it into the whole, which is the team, whose purpose is to win the game. And that that structures the way everything works. Well, sure. I mean, it certainly structures the way that you understand your own role in mm -hmm. the team. Yeah. Because, like, if I'm, uh, if I'm Steph curry and i'm the greatest three-point shooter of all time <clears throat> not everybody on the team is going to be a great three-point shooter That's right. but they all have other strengths that i don't have and so it's my job as a leader to make sure that they get to exercise their gifts because otherwise the whole thing isn't going to be as good as it could be yeah right yeah so so that that's how parts you know through care that everyone cares about this team being good. Everyone cares about winning the game. The care unites all these disparate parts and aligns them towards one good. And so that means part of them have to be sacrificed. Well, and the other thing that's happening here, though, is that you have the, let's say the game is a system. Yeah. Or let's say the team is a system. Yeah. But they're in the larger environment of the game. Mm -hmm. And so here's the example. Steph Curry, so help me think this through. 
Steph Curry is this great three-point shooter, mm -hmm. which so he could just put himself in the position every single time to, to uh, make a three-pointer and win the game all by himself. But it doesn't work that way because the minute the other team knows that he's a great three-point shooter, they're going to double up on him and they're going to keep him from being able to make any shot at all. Yeah. So if the rest of the team hasn't developed their strengths in other areas, his three-point shooting isn't going to do them any good at all, right? Yeah. So, so the whole team has to share in the talent. Yeah, and they have to be aware of what the environment outside it. So there's this constant yeah, feedback yeah. loop, right? Yeah, with the environment outside. Yeah, and constantly monitoring what the other players are doing and responding in, to that. And they're already prepared because everyone has gotten on board with this highest ideal and they've already, you know, sacrificed so much time to practice to to join into that talent mm -hmm. that makes this team what it is to begin with. Yeah. Yep. And, and see, and, that works all the way down. And, that, and even, even happening works, with the... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, it, it even works where, I mean, I suppose, I don't know, <laughs> you've been talking to the scientists much, much more. I mean, I haven't talked to the scientists at all, and you talk to them a lot, but but it must mean that there is some kind of sacrifice even on the orga inorganic level. That's what I think. You know, that... that that molecules can't, you know, atoms can't go hither and yon and do what the hell they want. Mm -hmm. If they want to get anything done, then this is a Persig thing. Persig would say, you get, you have greater freedom in teamwork. Like a molecule is a team of atoms that becomes much more powerful than any single atom on its own. And then that, that can turn into structures. So even, you know, on, and I, even on that low level, you know, you're wanting to come together and create something bigger. Yeah, and there's something very mysterious about that going all the way down to the quantum level. Um, I was watching a lecture today by Eric Verlinda, who has a, a new theory about quantum gravity, which I guess has been the big mystery for 40, 50 years, is how oh, is the quantum, well, Quantum mechanics and Newtonian mechanics don't fit together. They fit together on, on most things, and you can work out that each one has all the parts that they need, except when you, in the quantum, you can't get gravity, typically, yeah. because, because a lot of things, which I can't <laughs> articulate, but I'm roughly aware of. Um, yeah. But he's working on a way to find gravity in the, in the quantum mechanics. Yeah. But what he was talking about was, and I think I got this right, he was talking about qubits, which are the quantum bits, which they're going to be using for quantum computing. Mm -hmm. They can hold more information because in between the, the, the two entangled bits, you, yeah. you have a, you, you've heard of quantum entanglement, mm -hmm. that when action is taken on one um, particle in some part of the universe, Mm -hmm. If that's an if it's entangled with another particle, doesn't matter how far away that other particle is, th that other particle will be affected at exactly the same moment as this particle. Right. So, <clears throat> if one is spin up, the other one will be spin down. Yeah. If that turns to down, this one turns to up immediately, and it's very uh, peculiar thing these entangled bits. But what he was saying is. <clears throat> that when the bits are entangled, 
there's actually a, kind of like a pole, like a binary pole between the two, yeah. where all this information can reside along this pole from zero to one. There's an infinite, and I think I've talked about this before, that there's an, inf an infinity of infinites between zero and one. Right. So all of that can be a place to store information because it's this whole sliding scale between this bit and this bit. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, that's peculiar because, I mean, we have those binaries in, in our world between dark and light. You can go infinitely. Of course, yeah. You know, between light and dark, there's an infinite number of spots or between orange and blue or yeah. between... Um, judgment and mercy yeah. <laughs> right and so yeah. so there's there's all these um these binaries that are and, and it goes all the way down to the particle level yeah that's right yeah and and there has to be i mean things have to in order to exist and this is this is what's so cool about the Pajot brothers the initial you know the the first um picture is the separation of heaven and earth mm -hmm. so you've got something like the waters, right? Which is undifferentiated, um, undifferentiated potential. In order for us, for us to perceive anything at all, there has to be one division, you know, the division between heaven and earth. I mean, that's a cognitive reality. You can't know what something is without seeing the, seeing contrast. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're, it's just a miasma, you know, it's just undifferentiated potential. Light and dark. There has to be a difference between light and dark. Yep. And then at some point you discern what that is, depending on, you know, depending on how you at that moment make that distinction perceptually. Yeah, and that, that's where it comes down to context, right? Because you can think of something as a, a light gray until you put something dark next to it and then it right. then it looks like then it looks like white yeah <laughs> or you can think of something yeah. as a medium gray but then you put something light next to it and that medium gray looks like black mm -hmm. so context changes everything but there has to be that and this is something else very mysterious there has to be that initial choice right yeah that initial comparison has to be there otherwise yeah. there's nothing so so this Division between heaven and earth is either a, a moment of comparison or a moment of choice or something that's there at the very beginning. Because really, where does choice come from? And everything comes down to choice. We, we, the choice that we make in any given moment creates a context for what came before. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the first division is heaven and earth, at least in this, you know, in this cosmology. Or or let there, I mean, there's let there be light, but I let think... Let there be light, yeah. But I think let there be light kind of means that. It means... It divides the darkness from the light, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So the perception, and that's what attention is, I think. Because if you, you know, attention is going to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. If it's not anywhere at all, then there's nothing. So if to be, there to be anything at all, there has to be attention towards something. Yeah, and attention gathers. 
like well, I think it was Matthew Allison said, seeing curates. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I I don't have the Bible right here, but it talks in the beginning about he gathered the waters together, he gathered the land together. So it's that attention that does the gathering, and then but that gathering is at the same time a dividing. Because can't all be this amorphous mass anymore. There has to be a division made. So there's the there's the attention, the gathering, and there's the judgment, the pushing away. That's right. So every, everything comes down to that mercy and judgment. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. These these patterns just repeat and repeat depending on you know. Yeah. And it, it, um, accuracy. Well, let, let's go this way expression mercy is expression and yeah. judgment is accuracy yeah. and and the scientific worldview is accuracy the yeah. left hemisphere of the brain is accuracy yeah. the right hemisphere of the brain is expression is mercy <clears throat> so the the left hemisphere is stability mm -hmm. the right hemisphere is plasticity yeah it it goes all the way down and one of the things i love about matthew's book is that he starts talking about space and time in a way that sounds to me very much like the two hemispheres of the brain as well so yeah right yeah but but he kind of has it almost flipped from from what i gather from stephen wolfram's picture of the universe so i'd love to talk to matthew sometime about space and time <laughs> really pick his brain on it um well let's hope he's out there more i mean he did yeah. well he did the jvp interview and he talked to tammy mm -hmm. i get the impression he might be more interested in, in coming out and talking a little yeah bit. well he certainly has so much wisdom to bring it's amazing it's unbelievable yeah but did you hear in that in that in his interview with tammy said something like i don't even let on a fraction of what I know, you know, like, well, <laughs> <laughs> because it would probably scare everybody. <laughs> well, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think he's one of these people who is Christian who knows what's going on and can see the patterns and where it's going. Mm -hmm. And he's saying something big is going to happen. What does that mean? I mean, everyone's thinking nuclear war, but maybe it's not that at all. You know, mm -hmm. maybe it's like a total shift in consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of feel like we're on the cusp of something. I mean, mm -hmm. I keep meeting all these people who are turning from from a blindness into a, a seeing. I mean, mm -hmm. there's something happening. I don't recall this kind of thing in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Now, I think back in the back in the uh, early 80s when I first became a Christian there was a kind of a movement across the country mm -hmm. uh, we were kind of at the the tail end of the Jesus movement yeah when I first became a Christian there there was still some people who had come into the church through the Jesus movement is that crystal blue persuasion is that I don't know I don't know is that song connected somehow to faith I think it's it's um from the 60s but it, it's um a moment where this fellow Tommy James, I guess, was inspired by, I think it was Billy Graham. Crystal Blue oh. Persuasion is the blue light of the black and white television set. Oh, oh. 
no, I, I, I kind of remember the lyrics going in the back of my head. I can hear the melody in the back of my head, but I, I never heard that story. That's fascinating. So the Jesus movement would be some somewhere around the hippie movement, right? Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that was part of the, the hippie movement. I, we just recently had dinner with a couple who actually were part of that whole thing. They became Christians during the hippie movement. They moved out to a com. Well, they moved out to a commune, got into the drug scene, mm -hmm. did that whole thing. But then later they had an experience with Christ while they were living in the commune, and so then they ended up coming back to civilization, <laughs> getting a job. Yeah. <laughs> Responsibility, right? Yeah. Um, so it was fascinating to hear their story, but but the church that, that we used to attend in this area kind of grew out of that whole Jesus movement mm -hmm. and very strong on what they call body life in terms of everybody in the, in the church being connected with each other and hearing each other's stories and, mm -hmm. and having open dialogue and that all grew out of those young people coming in and being hungry. Mm -hmm. um, so there may be something a little bit analogous to that happening now, but I think it's not going to happen in the institutional church, the way the institutional church is right now, unless there's some big shift in consciousness in the church itself. Well, it may be why people are trying to go back the ortho, at least in this corner, you know, in, in the periphery, the orthodox route, because it's so, I mean, I think that's, that's so connected to like, like what Persig would say, cutting deeper channels, going back to what's been lost mm -hmm. and finding it, it again and, you know, getting the, the dreck out of the, out of the channels and cleaning them out again. And, and I don't think it's something like, I, I don't think it's even liberal or conservative. I don't think you could even say that this, this is at all associated with politics. Although, you know, still people are thinking, well, Christian means conservative and, you know, secular means liberal. I mean, this seems to be something beyond that. Yeah, I totally think there's been a complete shift in the way we view those binaries. Yeah. I, 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 it, it just doesn't even make sense anymore. If you it try to put them in the categories that we used to put them in 10 or 15 years ago, it doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, certain things would have to, you know, we've got like, 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 like Jonathan was saying, you've got Facebook and it had this human interest purpose initially, but it quickly got sub, you know, um, it, it quickly became waylaid and the purpose was making money. <laughs> <laughs> so, so oh, I mean, you, you think it had a beneficent purpose when it started? I mean, the well, the, way, the, the movie the, just shows these guys uh, trying to find a way to to find the women. <laughs> yeah, but it ended up. But I think the the initial Facebook situation was that you know you, um, I mean, Facebook really was good for connecting with people that you hadn't seen in forever, and that is a really high purpose in, in terms of human relationships. Mm-hmm. Sure, they, you know, but I think the money just became like, like, there's something that changed in Facebook where it was about selling your information, you know, and mining your information, making tons of money and selling you advertising, which I don't think was in the original, at least the oh, way. Because you have to make money somehow. I mean, sure. And that makes sense, but it just became all about money. 
Yeah, and so one of the biggest changes that they made in Facebook that made it completely useless to me is that if you haven't been on there for a week or two, it just drops off so that you don't see anybody any, anymore that you know. You just see a bunch yeah. of these promos that come through. And right. I'm not on here to look at promos. I'm on That's here right. to <laughs> catch up with people. But So I only get on now about every two weeks just to see if I've missed any birthdays. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and, uh, because it, it only shows me it maybe three or four out of my 457 contacts, you know, so. Yeah, so you just look at the birthdays and use yeah. it for them. That makes yeah. sense. I get but it. I think, um, but I think one of the things that would have to change is the focus, you know, and this is the difference between a materialist and a more spiritual worldview is the top thing at the top of the pyramid can't be money anymore if we want things to get better. I mean, I know that sounds really simplistic, but I think it's true. Mm -hmm. And that is what's at the top of the pyramid right now. Everything is guided by profit. Well, I know the younger generation is seriously trying to find a way to live without money being at the top of their pyramid, but it's complicated, man. You can say that you want you can say that you want to get a job that meets your um, emotional and relational needs. But if it doesn't pay enough money to pay the bills, you know, I mean, no, reality, reality comes smack up against you at a certain point and you got to have enough money to pay the bills. No, that's for sure. But I think that if it's the top concern, which is, is in general in most institutions these days, I mean, the whole military industrial complex, you mm -hmm. know, People would argue that that it's it's a it's a machine to perpetuate war, to make money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think just lessening it in terms. I mean, not obviously, you know, it's it's necessary, but lessening its importance and re replacing that importance, like looking higher for something more important, and mm -hmm. that would require a really a, a total restructuring of the way we see things. And I think it it. Also, I think essentially, you know, the essence of that probably is something like a totally new metaphysical understanding, which seems to be coming from both sides, from both the, the spiritual and the scientific side. And that's pretty cool. Well, one of the intermediate steps, though, that's really quite a danger is that because people need something to focus on to draw them together, especially if you have great diversity and, and you know, everybody is a different ethnicity and has different ideas and different backgrounds and people need something to draw them together and yeah. the nation state is a convenient place to put that energy so at least we're all patriotic we're all dedicated to our nation yeah but that can be that can turn toxic really fast i mean that's what's happened with with putin and his whole ideas right Absolutely. Let's make Mother Russia the top of the pyramid and uh, get everybody rah-rah about Mother Russia. And and that can just turn toxic really fast. So I think it's like super important that we hold out the truth that there's something above, way above the nation state. You know, that's the thing. This above is so far above that um, we can't comprehend it with our puny little human minds and we keep trying to come up with something that's graspable. Yeah. And, and I here's, an, uh, here's an idea that Brad had when we were talking about measurement that I think is kind of a, 
extraordinary thought. Maybe what Eve was trying to do in the garden was to become the observer herself. To put herself in the place of the observer so that she is the sole observer, which makes her the sole judge. Mm -hmm. Because if you are, you know, you eat the apple and you have a knowledge of good and evil, now you're the one who can divide. You're the one who can discern. You're the one who can say this or not that, right? Well, I guess your mistake was sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so then we have opponent processing between yeah, the two right. equal observers. Oh, right? yeah. Next next time we talk, we should talk about opponent processing. Yeah, for and, sure. And, well, actually, be... you know, that's we can put that right into these things we're talking about. You yes, know, the nature exactly. Of opponent processing is another model. It's like left-right hemisphere. It's like um you know mercy and judgment it's it's yet another yes. way of describing yeah. dynamic. well and i and i think that's i think that's the thing that's at the basis of everything is this opponent processing because the opponent processing is what produces the the uh the new the the actuality coming out of the potential new yeah. things creates new potential it's creativity right from the bottom up opponent yeah. processing which is why I think that McGilchrist's picture of the left and right hemisphere, the right and left, he calls it the master and emissary, as though that there's an inequality there, that the right hemisphere should actually be the, the powerful one and the left hemisphere should be subservient. Yeah. But I think it's opponent processing, just like in a marriage. Um but then I think there's a lot of, um, what's the word, concurrence between the, the archetypal feminine in the right hemisphere and the archetypal masculine in the left hemisphere. And I know he rejects that idea. Um, he doesn't see them as masculine and feminine. Maybe partly because the popular media tried to make it so, and they made a lot of mistakes in the way they described the two. And... Um, but certainly in the way Peterson talks about the archetypal feminine, it fits right in with the right yeah. hemisphere, which yeah. then would mean that in a marriage, it's an equal, in one sense, it's an equal partnership, but yeah. in another sense, it's equal opponents <laughs> continually butting up against each other. But it's also the environment and the system and the environment and the system, you know, it, one is the system with the environment and the other one is the system with the environment. Mm -hmm. So I think all of that is going on in yeah, that space. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, that would be really fun to talk about opponent processing because I would love to hear more about it from a therapist's perspective. Okay, well, let's make a, you know, I mean, I love your idea of doing a monthly talk, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be great. This has been great, Savilla. Um, Thank well, you so, so much. much. Yeah. Um, have a great month. I'm going to be yeah. offline for a little while because I'm having a surgery on November 8th. Yeah. Um, but I've tried to stack up enough episodes to cover at least the month after my surgery. So. Yeah, yeah that's going to be a, what, like about six weeks of recuperation. Right? Yeah, well, last time it turned into a year and a half of recuperation, but a lot of that recuperation, I could still sit in a chair and do videos yeah, on the practical <laughs> yeah, level. Driving. The first first four to six weeks, I can't I can't be sitting up and talking to people. So, all right. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. 
Thank and, you. Um, when you're ready, let's just do our, um, I mean, if you can't, if, if you're still recuperating, we'll start the monthly talks when you're ready. Yeah. Okay. Would like to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds great, Safella. All right, Karen. Have a great Best day. Best of luck with everything, and I will talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.